G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Research Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. They'd be incredibly grateful if you could just pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or whatever platform that you listen to this show on and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Uh, if you want to leave us a, a different star review, then we suggest that you just move on and don't leave us a review at all. Anyway, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review, and that way it helps getting this information out there to, to people who want to listen to it. Today we're very uh, honoured um, to uh, join Brian myself in the studio, uh, Dr. Rowena Packer. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Dom. Oh, so it's uh, it's a it's an honour to, uh, to to get you uh, to get you in the studio. I and talk do this about, more often. About some research, <laughs> absolutely. It's it's changed over the time. There's a bit more uh, sound damping facilities here before it's we, we used to hear the kitchen noises next door. <laughs> so so it's a bit better. Um, so, Marina, uh, I know that uh, you're you're very busy. So so we'll we'll uh, we'll get into to it. I was just wondering whether you could maybe briefly explain um, how you uh, got to the point where um you're you're you've been here at the obviously now for for almost a decade i suppose like sorry God, <laughs> Nine years. i just i was just wondering um if you could just sort of briefly explain sort of what the path that you 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 followed sure so i was the stereotypical child who was addicted to animals i used to hoard guinea pigs in good welfare state, it's important to say that, and was also obsessed with biology. So the standard thing, of course, for your careers advisor would be to say, oh, so you're going to be a vet one day. And I diligently, thanks to my mother, was sent off to go and do work experience and came back, unlike the other students who had gone at the same time, not particularly inspired, which is probably the wrong thing to be saying on an RVC podcast, but it just didn't really kind of ignore the cheese, like set my soul on fire. It wasn't really what I was expecting. So that left me as a teenager in a bit of a conundrum in terms of I would really like to do something related to biological sciences and I would really like to do something particularly related to animals and improving their lot in life, but where does that leave you? And particularly when you end up with some disgruntled careers advisors going, you're going to waste your grades, whatever that means. Um, So I was very lucky time-wise. So I started looking for other animal-related science courses and serendipitously ended up down in Bristol, which I think most of us will agree is an amazingly lovely city, amazing place to be a student, um, at an open day for a relatively new course, um, a BSc course in Animal Behaviour and Welfare which was then headed up by Professor Christine Nicholl, who is now at RVC, um, very newly, and was just blown away by how exciting it sounded. It was a relatively new science of trying to learn about how animals think and feel, what we do to them and how they cope with it, and was just completely hooked. There was nowhere else that you could have taken me at 18. I was a very stubborn 18-year-old. So I thankfully got onto that course and had an amazing three years. I think the really core thing there was that it was taught by really research intensive staff. So the lecturers were all very busy with their own research programs in really diverse areas. Um, Quite a heavy focus on production animals. So visiting all kinds of different farming systems, evaluating them. Um, Companion animals was also an important component. So in the final year, particularly with more of a focus on clinical animal behavior for those who want to pursue that route. Um, but also every animal use, lab animals, zoo animals. Um, And it was just an amazing few years. And I, by second year, was very much like, I'm going to do have a career in research, not realising that that was both quite challenging to get into, but actually more 
more challenging to stay in than get into, I think. So was it the the people that you uh, worked with in Bristol that kind of inspired you to that? Because it seems a, a quite obviously you were you were strong willed and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and determined <laughs> but uh, but were there <laughs> was there a few people that that there that that made you think gee i want to i want to do this absolutely well as i say christine who i hope does not listen to this now because it's embarrassing was just a figure for all of us as a really inspirational female scientist whose work had gone on to be involved in banning the battery cage so doing research that actually led to real improvements actual tangible changes for animals at a really grand scale was I think what got a lot of us excited um she was also very good at encouraging us to try research so back um in the summer of 2007 or 8 i did my first little bit of my own research with a u4 um animal welfare student scholarship i've now come full circle and i've had two of those students myself which still freaks me out no end. i have one right now um i spent the summer running around a free-range farm looking at ranging behavior in hens and A lot of it went catastrophically, which actually, from the perspective of understanding how research works, was probably a very useful first foray into it. Um, I then followed that after I graduated the following summer with another student scholarship, this time up in Newcastle, completely different, working with laboratory starlings, um, looking at their welfare, because they're the most commonly used lab bird. Not many people know that. Um, They hated me. I spent a whole summer underground in an aviary, looking at hand rearing versus wild catching of um, starling chicks and how that affected their interactions with people they after eight weeks still very much disliked me so that was kind of disheartening um it was useful from the perspective that i thought perhaps i don't want to work in the laboratory animal sphere it's very interesting but it was another good way in terms of shaping what i wanted to do um and you'll probably get from this, the theme was very much avian. So having been very much interested in companion animals as a broad range of animals, um, but wasn't really devout to them. And then I found myself... So can I just walk yeah. you through why, why, um, why birds? If you looked after guinea pigs when you mm-hmm. were younger, so where did the avian sort of um, side come in? I think the chicken thing comes in because they're probably the the biggest kind of area of animal welfare research in the UK is probably focused on them by the numbers game when we think of how many billion of them we consume um, on a yearly basis an awful lot of research does focus on trying to improve their husbandry their health their well-being so that I think was a big focus within um, within our undergraduate research And I think at the time, I didn't really contemplate a career in companion animal welfare because I didn't know if it was even sustainable a decade ago. It's very much a niche. There's very few companion animal welfare researchers, both in the UK and internationally, compared to um, farm animal researchers. So I think, in part, that was influencing my early thoughts on what I wanted to do because it was just so much more common. And so, sorry, I interrupted you. And, you, and so okay. you were, so you were finishing up that, and then looking for, so after your second mm-hmm. research project, then you just you were, you um, got involved in a PhD, or yes. So I didn't have a break that summer, which I now regret because you're only twenty one once. But I, the day after I graduated, moved to Newcastle. Eight weeks of starlings hating me. The day after that, I moved here. So I started an RBC on a dog. A PhD, which surprised everybody, including myself. But I was very um, committed to a career in research. And as I said, I'm very much 
interested in the science and would happily apply that science to a range of species and a decade on and probably pigeonholed myself rather a lot um, and it's not to say that you know canine science is amazing um, but I do get told off by some people for not as being wholeheartedly committed just to dogs. Well you never know where your career sort of might Absolutely. end up. Absolutely. What was your PhD on Rowena? So my PhD was looking at what I think is an important issue and very topical even more topical probably now than it was even 10 years ago on the breeding of extreme um, companion animals particularly dogs so breeding for exaggerated and extreme features um, two-thirds of that probably unsurprisingly focused on brachycephalic dogs so your short muzzled um, dogs pugs bulldogs frenchies um, particularly on their airway disease and also on their ophthalmic so their eye problems particularly corneal ulcers I also, via that, ended up um, having one chapter on disc disease in Dachshunds. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. In chondrodystrophic long and low breeds, but it obviously ended up being nearly entirely Dachshunds. And that is probably how I ended up going on to my next part of my career, as you might have guessed, the missing link of the human being yeah. there. Um, but yeah, I spent those four years um, looking at the links between how... so one of the papers was called how long and low can you go or how short is too short so how short can we breed a dog's muzzle to be before their risk of airway disease becomes unacceptably high whatever unacceptable is for me or you or brian um and also in terms of their back so how long and low can we breed them in terms of that stereotypical slinky sausage shape before their risk of slipping discs um becomes high also became quite interested in the owner thing which i'm still very interested in in terms of owner perceptions of disease because dogs wouldn't, and cats and any animals wouldn't be turning up at vets unless owners noticed things and presented them and owners have obviously got to notice things quite heavily to get to a referral level um, and my concern there was more actually the lack of recognition of disease which I think is becoming more and more prominent um, within the brachycephalic sphere that there were so many animals in this case coming through the cohort that I was recruiting that we're perhaps here for a cruciate repair or we're here for an issue seemingly unrelated to their airways. But from my perspective, trying to record their phenotype, I was like, well, this dog quite screamingly has airway disease. But from the perspective of what it's being treated for or diagnosed with, that's being swept under the carpet or perhaps ignored by the owners at least and actually at a wider level vets this was before the brachy clinic came in obviously so i think hopefully that would be something that would be seen the dogs would be seen more holistically now so we looked at the concept of normal for the breed um and that's something that i still it's not my main research program but i still um carry out research into particularly the things that are driving the popularity of these breeds kind of paradoxically in the face of their horrendous health problems is that looking at more human nature rather than the the animal side of it absolutely and because not appreciating that something is abnormal means that it's you've been living with it for a long time absolutely and it's kind of you know it's a no surprise situation in a way with some of the conditions that we see particularly in brachycephalics because when we think they're early onset so it could be from if you get a pup at eight weeks, it could already be showing some subtle signs. If you think that some of them can have laryngeal collapse by six months, you've got... They never really have a normal starting point. It's so prevalent that actually if I go by a pug puppy today, I'm not going to, but if I did, and then I went for a walk in Regent's Park and saw another pug and it was making the same noise, I'd think, oh, well, it's OK, it's a pug thing. Um, and some of the signs they show might be a little more subtle, so things like their behavioural adjustments to try and cope with an impaired airway 
there's things that owners might not pick up on and I think it's almost everybody's complicit to it because it, it's so prevalent that it's in your face but it's only when you open an owner's eyes to it if you can that they realize so I think from an animal welfare perspective although I'm really interested in the science of diseases that affect animals um, and how diseases impact upon them actually a lot of the th problems that we face with particularly companion animals are driven by people not always intentionally but understanding people and what they do I think is as important to many animal diseases as actually understanding how to treat them um, or prevent them themselves. Is it? Do you find it quite ironic that now you, you're, a, a recent publication you, you brought out saying that French bulldogs are probably the most common breed in, in or other most common breed in the UK now? Does that make you more concerned just in, in general that you know what the things that you've looked at? <laughs> not only people are not noticing, but actually you know haven't haven't listened at all. Absolutely. Um, so tomorrow I'm going off to I'm going today off to U4 mention you for a lot but they funded me a lot and they do lovely conferences to present some new research um, on this with one of my master's students looking at repurchase and recommendation of brachycephalic breeds so the big three so Frenchies, Bulldogs and Pugs and uh, worryingly 91% of over 2,000 owners we spoke to said that they would repurchase that breed again and obviously it then begs the question or oh, perhaps they've all got really healthy dogs but when you dig into their health their health is kind of as you would expect for these breeds, really high vet bills. Um, and actually a lot of the health issues don't seem to be the things that are driving whether somebody would choose to have them again or not. From a recommendation perspective, over half of all those breeds from owner to owner would recommend them. And actually a lot of it, when we ask them um, in a more kind of a social science sense of getting them to actually tell us in their own words why, a lot of it comes down to their dog's behaviour so that they think, and most people will agree that they think a lot of these dogs have fantastic personalities, um, and they, there's this very strange trade-off between owners recognising that their dog has perhaps cost them a lot, there's been some emotional turmoil, but they couldn't live without one. <laughs> so actually from, from my own perspective now, thinking of how can we break this kind of horrendous, vicious cycle of people having a really traumatic, potentially maybe six to eight years, if their lifespan um, is that curtailed, of poor health, potentially spending thousands of pounds trying to fix them, or fix is the wrong word, I think, as we know, trying to get their quality of life to an acceptable level. But then once that dog has sadly passed away or been euthanized, that they go back and get another. And I think from a vet's perspective, speaking to colleagues um, in first opinion practice who've been devastated after treating an animal chronically and thinking the owner might have learnt some lessons and then coming back a few weeks later for jabs for a new pup of the same breed. So I think we've focused quite heavily in the past on, I guess, how do we stop owners from buying these breeds anew? But actually, when we think there were 30,000 French Bulldogs registered in the UK last year, these are just the Kennel Club registered ones, um, that actually if those owners in five to ten years' time then want to buy another when that dog passes away or they want to buy another as a companion that's not going anywhere away anytime soon so although I say my research interests are a little bit more diverse post my PhD now um, that's one I can't drop entirely because it's just it's probably one of the biggest animal welfare issues of our time. Do you, do you think that brachycephalics are popular because of the looking like people or the flat-faced breeze looking a bit more human-like is that because we do we like to look in animals and see ourselves. Mm. So, so do you think that's partly driving the, 
the popularity? Or? Potentially. It's something that's spoken about a lot. So this concept of that they are neotenized, that they've got baby-like features. So <laughs> I haven't seen many babies that look too much like that, particularly the wrinkly ones. But the big-eyed, small nose, particularly overly large head look is meant to be reminiscent of a baby. And it's thought that they are potentially hijacking some of our kind of evolutionary um um, motivations to care obviously we, we're driven to care for babies um, there's a really interesting study from the states a few years ago that looked at manipulated photos of babies that were made to be more or less cute so this more or less baby like so increasing digitally either the size of their eyes decreasing their nose making them super cute or <laughs> less cute that's terrible <laughs> yeah. and they asked um a cohort of of college students which ones they thought were cuter and which ones they wanted to care for more and as we said possibly unsurprisingly the, the cutest the ones that had been manipulated to look most baby-like were rated the cutest but that was also the ones that people were opting that they wanted to care for and it's whether that's kind of been co-opted into dogs and that we're really driven to care for these animals and actually from some owners in our recent work saw these health traits almost as a positive thing that they wanted an animal that needed that high level of maintenance and care and even if it meant cleaning their skin folds every day or putting eye drops in or having such elaborate routines to avoid them from overheating or collapsing that that kind of becomes almost a a specialist breed and I almost feel like when we look at the BSAVA manuals we've got one on exotics that you should almost put some of these breeds within that because they're you know they're not treated as normal dogs as you know from a clinical perspective they have all of these extra needs um when they're ill but just to keep them alive on a day-to-day -day basis there's all these extras so they're both fascinating and horrifying at the same time <laughs> Can, can I ask you before we move uh, move back on? I, I remember uh, going to um, uh, to Tring the Natural History Museum mm -hmm. there, and they've they've got the like interesting the, the largest collection of privately owned stuffed animals from the Victorian time. Mm -hmm. Very sad, obviously, but but very interesting. Mm -hmm. But they've got a few dogs there, and there's a few pugs and British bulldogs, mm -hmm. and they do look very different. See, so it, it did you find out like when things suddenly? changed exponentially or, or has it just been a gradual process so i think there's been changes over time um we have a fascinating colleague who we need to get to speak of these things more um a vet he's down at king's doing a phd um alison skipper um he's doing a phd on the history of pedigree dog health as a historian so she's basically retrained and looking at things from a totally different perspective and she's got some really fascinating insights um, particularly with the bulldog so there's a lot of um, attention on the bulldog right now um, with I guess multifaceted issues and their body shape looking as extreme as, as, as it ever has but actually over a hundred years ago there were the same factions of people breeding the traditional slightly more athletic looking version and moving towards the more extreme versions and there was a lot more uproar back then about breeding these what they use really strong terms aberrations of dogs um, but I think the thing that frustrates me from a historical perspective is there has been concern over these breeds for an awfully long time, but it really waxes and wanes. So from my perspective, it's why I just can't let go of it because we're probably in a peak right now of interest research in lots of different um, 
elements about these dogs but it could just go away again you know research is very heavily dependent on funding and obviously funding is partly driven by public interest and lots of other things um so although we are probably considered on it right now that we're trying to crack this bracky issue a member of the brachycephalic working group in the uk which is big multi-stakeholder group that when I started my PhD we couldn't even dream of having those organisations in the same room and not tearing each other's eyes out but we're getting there but at the same time that any of those things could just drop off and it could be that in a hundred years time we've got people sitting in the studio talking about it again reinventing the wheel saying oh we should be worried but this isn't the first time there was an entire symposium on these issues in 1963 which was before I was born anyway um so it's not a new thing and it's something that we have to be tenacious with to try and improve this time. Are there certain countries in the world that are actually more proactive than the, the UK or, or is, is there everyone in the world is, is having the same uh, issues? I, that's a really good question. I think the UK are in some ways leading the way. From, the Bracky Working Group is pretty novel. There is, um, in Scandinavian countries, there's the Nordic Kennel Union also have a Bracky Working Group Um so I think in part we're, we're doing pretty well. We could definitely do an awful lot better, obviously, because we can't say we have a handle on the problems because the population is still booming. Um, but it's really interesting, I think, going forward, trying to benchmark what different countries are doing. So who is changing breed standards, who is changing judging regulations or indeed laws. We know that there's potentially um, a new law coming in this year that could impact upon the breeding of extreme animals, not just dogs. So I don't think there's anywhere that's a standout winner right now because the booms are happening everywhere. Um, a colleague you probably know as well at the University of Sydney, Paul McGreevy, is a welfare scientist who has done some really nice work on, on brachies too and had commented saying that there is a plague of Frenchies in Sydney right now and that horrifies me when I think of the weather in Sydney. I mean, obviously we're pretty nice here right now, but how do they cope in other countries who have insane humidity and heat compared to us? So it's a problem everywhere by the looks of it, but I don't think anywhere has a particular handle on it right now. There's probably a lot of like social science, as you said, uh, mm. influences in that and probably the, the celebrity and global uh, media age that you can you know, pe- see people with these cute dogs and everyone who might have the uh, ability to afford these uh, as, as pets can. So. Absolutely. Probably, probably drives that a bit. So, so that was uh, a little bit of a, a social story. <laughs> but uh, um, so, after you finish your PhD, what mm-hmm. what um, what happened then? I had a slightly bizarre uh, flux period. So, I spent a few months. I actually ran an impact event at the RVC on Bracky Health. So, I spent a few months planning and executing that. So, we had a multi-stakeholder event here to disseminate some of the work that I'd done. Because again, I think very much working in animal welfare science. It's not science in a bubble. You want it to reach the real world. You want it to have impact. Um, I was pretty naive back then in terms of thinking about how knowledge transfer occurred and how change occurred. Now far more cynical, but it was a good. I think it was a good starting point in terms in terms of kicking off other organisations thinking on this. We know that, for example, in the UK, um, BVA, PDSA, a lot of the big charities um, and organisations are now campaigning on this more. So. I was very urgent back in 2013 to get things to change, but I'm more realistic now. So we had that event. Um, I also spent a lot of time on flyby flights from here to Belfast because I spent a few months lecturing on the Animal Behaviour and Welfare Masters over at Queen's University Belfast, which was an interesting experience. I It's useful in life to 
be able to have a point to reflect back on and go, I know I'm busy right now, but I'm not as busy as I was in November 2013. So that's my always one of both working here, running that event, getting ready for my Viva and lecturing full time on a course over there. So in a different country. In a yeah. different country. Yeah. It's funny. Thankfully, I was quite near Outwick then. So, yeah, lots and lots of flying. Um, really interesting, though. Nice to actually break briefly out of the RVC bubble. Um, obviously, from a lecturing perspective, that on that course is very broad. So I had to start thinking about animals that weren't dogs for a little bit. But then it was probably four months and the call came from our lovely colleague, Holger, who is, as many people know, um, our current head of department and um, one of our big neurologists here. And Holger and I had met um, in part during my PhD because I wanted to borrow his Jacksons. So I had approached the neuro team earlier on during my PhD um, in terms of recruiting dogs from their service to the study because I wanted to measure them. Um, I wanted to get their clinical histories. And he obviously was interested in, in what we were doing there. Um, he knew obviously that I had an interest in behaviour as well, which I neglected somewhat during my PhD. Um, although I do think there's lots to look at in terms of the behavioural impacts of things like brachycephaly. Um, and was interested in whether I wanted to come back and work with him on some behaviour work, but this time looking at epilepsy. So from my perspective, I would say now my research interest quite broadly is inherited diseases in dogs that obviously come in many different forms. Um, and epilepsy was one that was on my radar, but I'd never worked on before. But, you know, ever looking for a new challenge, I moved back here. Um, it was quite nice to not be on a flight every week. And that's kind of been me ever since. So I've worked on nearly entirely on epilepsy for the past four and a half years. Um, my interest in epilepsy is a little different in a sense that my core interest has been not about well I'm obviously I'm interested in seizures but I'm interested um, in the comorbidities of epilepsy so looking at epilepsy beyond seizures which is a bit of an overused phrase now for us but thinking about what epilepsy is beyond being a seizure disorder so a lot of that has been taking inspiration from the human world so I have to do try and get my imposter syndrome in check going to human neurology conferences and being in the corner like oh god I'm talking about dogs um they're often quite interested there's increasing recognition of the dog being a really robust naturally occurring model of epilepsy um but recognizing from the human world that actually the, there's a really really vast range of comorbidities of epilepsy in people mainly we think about cognitive impairments so things like memory and learning but also much increased prevalences of mood disorders, so things like anxiety and depression, and other neurodevelopmental disorders, so thinking things like autism and ADHD. Um, and because there's all this recognition that dogs are potentially this really good model, they are spontaneously pharmacoresistant, we use some of the same drugs, the human neurologists laugh a bit and think we're really archaic for using things like phenobarbital, but they've got lots of nice drugs now that they can use that are either toxic to dogs or have horrifically short half-lives, so they shouldn't laugh too much. Um, so, yeah, I spent a few years working with Holger on a really broad mishmash of projects, working with um, both academic projects but also with industry, and then at the end of 2017... Was it interesting? See, I've lost track of my own life... Over a year and a half ago, I then um, was awarded um, an independent research fellowship um, by BBSRC, which was a shock to me, um, to continue some of this work um, on my own and to continue, I guess, with primarily focusing on neurodevelopmental disorders of dogs with epilepsy. Wow. 
That's uh, that's pretty um, pretty pretty impressive. For, uh, did, what what sort of advice would you um, would you have given yourself uh, when you started your your PhD? Oh blimey! I think um, a big part is being flexible. So obviously, I from the start you might have guessed moving from thinking I was going to work with poultry to dogs it was very much a decision based on can I still have a really interesting career going down this route I think I have so far um and taking opportunities um and seeing what you can learn from them so having a random few months in Belfast was really stressful and strange at the time but actually was really useful um moving on to a completely different disease um for my postdoc was again felt at the time like oh should I be doing this but actually I think it was an amazingly good decision to take um, at the time so I think definitely being flexible um, a lot of and I, I apologize to any American listeners American levels of self-belief are important because actually there's always somebody who is going to be more willing to sell themselves and a huge part of research is obviously publishing and gaining grants and when you think about a big part of grant funding is selling yourself as well as the research, you really have to know how best to sell yourself. I hadn't had an interview for a long time before I had my interview for my fellowship, and that was incredibly intense, X-Factor-style panel, but think of 20 judges rather than four. Um, and a lot of that was about looking for the potential within yourself, being able to pick up on what you think are the traits that would make you a good research leader in the future, and all things that make me utterly cringe, but actually when you focus on what you want out of this, what are other people willing to say? Um, that actually self-belief, or at least fake it till you make it style self-belief, is pretty important. How, how have you um, done that? How have you managed to, to teach yourself that? Or have you gone to, to people to to get advice or did you um was there like a moment of of clarity when it all came through that you realized you had to do this or has it just been a gradual um I think in part I've been incredibly lucky to have really good mentoring I think that can't be um that can't be forgotten and is so important I think during the early stages of a research career because it's just so precarious so going from short-term contract short-term contract is pretty hair-raising when you're also trying to have a life um, and there's also quite, I think a lot of pressure on early career researchers to move from institute to institute there's always been this kind of kudos that I'm going to go do a postdoc in America and then come back and move to somewhere in Europe but actually I think from the perspective of things like equality and diversity and recognizing people's personal circumstances I think there's a little less of a push towards that because not everybody can move every two years and drop everything um, and from my perspective, although I, on paper, was really quite flexible in terms of moving, I really wanted to stay at RVC to continue with my fellowship because technically I could up it and leave if I wanted. Um, but I think being able to, if you feel like you're established somewhere, that you've got a good network, and I think a big part of it is having a good network of people and having good supporters um, is really important. I obviously have had Holger for the last four and a half years as an incredible mentor, um, I have an external mentor as part of my BBSRC fellowship and I think peer mentoring, looking to your peers both in your own university and elsewhere and discussing issues and being able to just see that, OK, maybe maybe I am doing OK. <laughs> but it is those moments of, I mean, my first moments when I got called to say I had this fellowship were unfortunately to swear and then cry and then say, are you still going to give me this funding? <laughs> 
<laughs> but that that's the kind of level of I think you you constantly do question yourself in research because you know the lifeblood of it when you think about peer review and papers is it's people criticizing your work constantly when you put in grants it's again peer review when you you know present a conference it's people asking you questions sometimes can be quite critical so I think it's very difficult at times to be able to think push those things aside and still believe what you're doing um is good but I think a lot of it also just comes from being really passionate about what you do if you really want to do it you know I still you know 10 years on and desperately would like to continue in a research career um that that really helps being stubborn <laughs> you, you mentioned about that the uh previous idea about researchers going from different positions in different countries and different grants and probably as, as you said probably because of their the lack of sort of funding and, mm. and not living like hand to mouth but almost that way because there's not a lot of uh, of permanent posts so it's almost do you think that was kind of like the romanticized mm. idea that you should do this because the reality of it is if you Absolutely. look at it in a way that you're having to think about the next grant and the next grant then then actually that's that's really challenging absolutely i think there's definitely merits in moving i think potentially from lab to lab in terms of who you're exposed to um and i very much had to defend that when i say i'd applied to stay here for my fellowship but i think you can overcome it by for example having collaborators internationally so on my current work um i wanted to learn how to do eeg as a research tool because I'm studying brains so it's kind of useful to know what they're doing rather than just watching the animal externally because the two don't always match um so one of my collaborators is Dr Fiona James who is the EUG guru out at um, Ontario Vet College in Canada so I get to go out to see her as part of my fellowship and be exposed to her research and her methods and I think that is useful to not just be within your own little bubble. Um, it's really important, funding permitting, to go to things like conferences to see what other people are doing um, because there's there's never... I'm never going to be more enthusiastic than the day after coming back from a conference. So having one this tomorrow and then one next week, I'll come back in two weeks' time just with all of the zest of life, probably exhausted, but we'll be like, yes, I love research. <laughs> um, so I definitely think not staying too much within your own bubble is useful but i i'm passionate in saying that if you somewhere is good for you and you're good for that place then you shouldn't have to move and so what what do you uh what do you plan to do um in the in the immediate sort of future i know it's difficult <clears throat> you might you might eventually go back to to poultry I, <laughs> I, I presume that's probably the uh the idea but what what, what are you working well, what are you working on currently actually so at the moment um my main work um is <laughs> i love border collies right now so i'm using the border collie as a example of epilepsy in dogs so we know border collies are predisposed to epilepsy we know when they have it they often have a more severe phenotype so they're more likely to have cluster seizures and they're more likely to be pharmacoresistant so they're interesting from that perspective but we also most of us will know that border collies do some pretty funky things as well so their behavior is not always typical of other dogs um, so i'm really interested in whether within that spectrum of behavioural abnormality that we think we see in border collies, if it's reminiscent of other comorbidities of epilepsy. So this always raises a few eyebrows, but it's scientifically focused and it's very much driven from the human side. I'm looking to phenotype their behaviour more objectively, so using a range of objective behavioural tests, owner reports, and then also EEGing them, so looking at their brain activity and MRIing them, looking at their brain structure, to see whether actually some of these traits that we see both broadly in their population but specifically in the dogs with epilepsy are reminiscent of 
other neurodevelopmental problems. So I mentioned earlier um, autism and ADHD. Um, so in people with epilepsy, up to half of them can be diagnosed with ADHD, so generally between 20 to 50%. And around one in five, so around 20%, are also diagnosed with autism. So incredibly strong predisposition um, or comorbidity there. And when we look at some of the traits, so if we think, if you strip back some of these phenotypes, so we're not saying this dog is autistic, we're saying are there traits there that could be reminiscent when we think of, currently we usually use mice as models of autism, so there's a whole spectrum there. But if you think one of the core traits um, of autism is abnormal repetitive behaviour, and we know that in Border Collies, or we're learning in Border Collies, that that is incredibly common. We've started a study last Thursday, um, the Big Brainy Border Collie study. We've already had 4,000 donors <laughs> in less than a week um, respond, which is slightly mind-blowing. Um, and already from peeking at the data, the prevalence of things like um, uh, tail chasing, fly snapping, repetitive um, over-grooming um, are really high, way higher than we might have anticipated in those breeds. I'm also looking at their social interaction, because that's obviously an important part of the autism phenotype as well. Looking at their impulsivity as a trait of ADHD. We're going to be putting activity collars on them to objectively measure hyperactivity. Um, and as I say, we want to take a broad look at this. I'm not saying from the word go that this is what I think these dogs are affected by, but I think it looks like there could be traits that are reminiscent. And from a biological perspective, that would make sense because, again, this comorbidity is so strong. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. Um, we're running this big epidemiological online study because I want five to 10,000 border colleagues now involved. It's a worldwide study, so why not? To try and look both broadly at prevalence, although I'll get my wrist lapped because it's an online self-selected population, but also risk factors um, for these traits and whether they are more um, commonly in dogs with epilepsy. And then the clinical study, um, which we're starting this month, um, we'll be recruiting 60 collies. So it's a case control study. So they, we're going to have epileptic dogs and then dogs, same breed, same sex, same age, matched and looking at facing them off on things like their behavioral traits their EEG and the EEG isn't just from an epilepsy perspective so people with ADHD and particularly autism when they are EEG'd have a lot more um, interictal um, epileptiform abnormalities so not always full seizures but you see more abnormal activity just on a regular um, EEG when they're restful so we're trying to um, replicate that in these dogs which is uh, a learning curve in terms of doing that in an ambulatory dog um, is, again, I've seen it happen plenty of times over in Canada with Fiona, so it's definitely doable, but would really open doors in terms of learning more about brain activity in these dogs. Um, there are other groups who are starting to do this, and I think that EEG could be an incredible tool going forwards um, within the veterinary sphere, both diagnostically, but actually from a research perspective, learning more about things like sleep. I'm obsessed with sleep now. <laughs> what do dogs do while they're sleeping? Um, and also other other traits. Um, there's lots of really clever computer methods you can do now to quantify EEG data. So yes, that's going to be my new my new hobby. <laughs> wow, wow. Um, how, how long do you expect this to, uh, to, to, to take? So we've got another two years. So I'm going to be recruiting um, for the practical study colleagues probably for the next 12 months. We'll be having hopefully at least a dog or two a week coming through the QMH um, for these studies. Um, again, this is, this is my first project that I've ever done under Home Office Licence um, because 
obviously we are very much committed to transparency using animals in research here at RVC. Um, and the control dogs, of course, those procedures are for science. We need to learn about what the, a normal brain behaves like, what a normal brain looks like for those breeds, so we can really scientifically, objectively compare them. So that's been an interesting um, process of having to go through all of the appropriate legislation for that. And of course, um, educating owners on what they would like to be recruited for. It's very different to back in my PhD, grabbing owners in the waiting room saying, hey, can I measure your dog? <laughs> So it's it's definitely a different side of clinical research, but definitely also very interesting. I'm very excited to see what we managed to find in 2020. Well, that's uh, that's good. Are you are you still looking to to recruit um, uh, patients for for your study and animals for your study? Yeah. Absolutely. So both through our, obviously our hospital links, but um, more broadly, of course, um, UK based owners. Um, are eligible we're looking for dogs obviously with epilepsy but also controls very broadly aged from one to eight that don't have any other neuro or orthopedic problems um we obviously have a big information pack for owners because we want them to be completely informed about what their dog will be involved in um but yes i will be at every border collie event ever for the foreseeable future to try and recruit those dogs but the initial um the initial response has been really positive incredibly engaged community we tested the waters with the border collie community last summer with my youthful summer student alex who's one of our vet med students here now um who we did the great big hairy border collie study where we looked at hair cortisol so the stress hormone deposited in hair in dogs with epilepsy and dogs that didn't and we were inundated with hair <laughs> which is best parts of research where you're just getting envelope after envelope of hair sent through. some of them came from new zealand and australia well i think if you own a border collie you've, you've got plenty of hair to there is uh, plenty of hair but yeah i was amazed by that but yeah we've had some really cool results from the collies so far so yeah i'm going to hopefully continue on that front well, maybe we could we could put some like links to uh to to the study and the, the show notes that we, we will put on um so what, what do you think are in general the challenges with with research today or the or the challenges that you you found in your in your career so far um i think you picked up on it earlier dom in terms of research funding is always going to be a huge stopping point you know i've been at obviously as you say for nearly a decade and i've worked with some really amazing scientists whose careers have possibly been cut short because of funding situations and obviously we all have to live and funding is very sporadic so you can have great periods Holger and I two years ago managed to get three big grants in one year but that was after a year of probably no grants so it is very up and down and we often only share our successes not our failures so I think there's a big point in scientists being honest with each other about success rates because you know, we sometimes can pour our life several months into writing a grant and then it fails and it's devastating at the time but being able to learn to pick yourself up and repackage that grant or take advice in terms of how you think you can improve it so I think that is a huge element of it that people even if they want to stay in science don't always have that option um, and can be lost and I don't think the word lost is particularly the right word to industry or to charities because some people of course choose alternative careers potentially post PhD and I think that should be encouraged where that fits people better but for those people that want to stay in science I think it is that that early period before you get your first permanent position of knowing what are you going to be doing in a year or two years and that can be a real off-putter 
So I think clubbing together is a big thing. We've got the Researcher Association at RVC. I've recently retired from that after three years, but this is the body of contract researchers. So this is quite a, a eclectic bunch of people, but it's anything from anybody who's on a contract for research that isn't permanent, which is actually quite a lot of people across both campuses. So research assistants, postdocs, um, in lots of different forms. Um, and we have come together as that organisation to represent our needs at various, for example, college committees to promote ourselves externally, run bespoke training, because our training can be quite specific or there's particular needs that we have compared to perhaps permanent staff um, to try and improve um, our careers, um, whether that will be continuing in academia or actually taking a completely different path in the future. So I think that's a great initiative within RVC. And I think I would hope that other organisations also have similar um, uh, merry bands of people. And they're only ever, they're run via motivation. You know, it's something that you do voluntarily. And um, the current um, executive committee on that are great and very, very enthusiastic and tenacious. But I think you've got to stand up for yourself because I think actually a lot of people wouldn't even know that that population of researchers exist because some of them are here for maybe six months, 12 months, 18 months and then they're off somewhere else. So, yeah, I think being looked after at this career stage is really important. Absolutely. And what what, what would you... So you saying you have some master's students and imagine you have um, some people doing projects with you if they're very fortunate, the RP2 students or things like that, so they're uh, the BVET med un undergraduates as well. So, so what advice do you give to either a young scientist or young vet um, to have like a successful career in research what so if they come to you and say you know i want to be you yeah, i'm God sure you're an amazing role model but like if you if they say that probably not those words and mm. not stalking you or anything like that but like <laughs> if they do <laughs> if they do say that like what do you what 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 do you do you say that's a really good question um I'm always enthusiastic. I don't think it's ever, even if somebody is not what you might think of as a research on paper, not putting people off, making sure they're realistic about what a research career means, um, because a lot of us are really naive to start with. When I think back to how naive I was at 18, going, I'm going to be an animal welfare researcher. I had no idea, really. It just sounded really interesting. So being realistic, um, when people are embarking in a PhD, knowing what they want to do it for, um, people do PhDs for all different reasons. Um, mine here was fantastic. I really enjoyed it, but also am mindful that other people didn't have such positive experiences either here or elsewhere. It's a really tough process to go through. And I guess reflecting on your own resilience, because it's not to say you can't be sensitive and be a researcher, but it does take its toll, as I mentioned before, that it is there are a lot of failures as well as successes so whether you feel like you can cope with that it's very up and down but I think from my perspective it's just have you got the passion to do it and I know that passion is often a bit of a cringy word but it actually carries you through in so many of these things and have you got the tenacity to keep going after that as a career because you really have to want it um both from a um perspective of being really productive so getting the papers out doing the presentations um but also from for example if you're going for things like fellowships really proving to you know i'm funded by the government right now which i constantly am like blimey that's pressure you know if it's taxpayers money do you really want it are you going to use that money well what are you going to use it for for your future career so yeah i think looking at your own resilience your own passion and whether you're sure because i don't think it's a particular career for the faint-hearted. 
<laughs> um, but it is fantastic. Like and, that's the flip side. <laughs> and so, and you said you you've spent most of your career at the at the RBC. But what what um, what, what do you like uh, about uh, the RBC and and uh, what you know the facilities you have here? Because I suppose we're yeah. quite a small um, standalone institution, really, compared to like a, a bigger university Absolutely. that I'm sure are knocking on the door. I think from a perspective, of, we obviously are small and specialist, but we do have such a breadth of veterinary science just within our two campuses um, and you never know who you could work with next so I do like that from the perspective of you know there's potential collaborators all the time I have done quite a lot of work down at Camden with Rob Folks, one of our fantastic endocrinologists um, working on hair and on spit we love, we love dog spit and human spit that's a story for another time but it was science um, so there's loads of ready-made collaborators here um, who you can diversify your work with the hospital is a fantastic place to do research, no doubt, because obviously we have a lot of research active clinicians. People appreciate that it's a challenging environment to try and get research done in, but actually I think it's facilitated far more than it would be in other environments. So I think it's really nice um, from that perspective. Um, and it is, I think we are small and we are specialists, but we are broad within that too. Um, we're incredibly friendly. I think when I think of the amount of people in the last 10 years who I've worked with on studies and papers. It's a real mishmash of people, but, you know, it, you get to, and this is it's really cheesy, this thing in general, working with your friends, what more could you want in terms of collaborators? You know, you can work with people who you can have fantastic conversations with about science, but are also just really good fun. <laughs> so I think RVC definitely wins on that too. Um, and, you know, we're close to London. There's links to, from a postgrad perspective, it's fantastic as a PhD student, I went on a lot of courses run by the Bloomsbury Consortium, so other universities within um, London. You've got access to some amazing um, biomedical um, research intensive institutes. So there's always exposure to other things externally, um, as well as, as RVC itself. But yeah, I can't imagine where else I'd want to be right now. That sounds so great, and we're glad that you're here, um, for sure, and and hope long long that you stay. Um, I was just I, I've asked uh, um, everyone this, it might be quite a difficult question to answer. But I've actually got got two two more questions. But that's all right. But if you could answer one question in uh, research in in any in any field, or I'd imagine in your idea, what mm. what would you like to try and answer? Oh, blimey! Oh, that's a really loaded one, Dom. Um, although obviously my passion right now is for epilepsy and is very much for the biological sciences. As I alluded to earlier, I think the social science questions are super important too. So I actually think, <laughs> from a really basic perspective, how do we get people to stop buying dogs or animals in general that are defective? I know that's a loaded question and a loaded word, but how do we get people to do right by their animals um, and to not put their own desires first? So... Yeah, I think social science obviously is something that we're doing more at RVC. Um, I've got a new master's student, a vet grad from here, who's looking more at owner decision making. So I think understanding people um, is a really important thing. <laughs> do, do you think that's um, uh, what we need to do in this situation, that we need to stop people from buying these breeds? Or at the same time, do we need to try and change these breeds so they're not as uh, dysmorphic as, as as they are or do you i think it's a it's a balance i mean realistically as we know from even treating these animals we can't get them back to normal um 
which is obviously a big issue if people feel like their their dog has had potentially very expensive or very risky surgery and now they feel they're better even if they're potentially not um i think we need to drastically reduce their popularity hence why i think stop buying is a big part because you know, only 10 years ago, there were only 200 Frenchies registered a year in the UK and now there's 30,000. So if we were dealing with 200, we could probably focus more on just making those 200 better. But from a perspective of 30,000 as a conservative estimate, I think stop is probably a word that I would use more. I'm definitely more hardline on those issues now because I'm seeing the issues get worse, not better. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, and it's not to infringe on people's liberties you know it's not to say you can't there's obviously a hugely loaded area of trying to ban breeds but actually actively want people wanting to have animals that are bred to have a long and healthy life is really important so yeah i think not just for things like brachies but for inherited disease in general you know the qmh would probably be in a bit of a pickle um or be a pretty quiet place if all inherited diseases disappeared <laughs> in the next decade which is obviously an interesting ethical conundrum in its own right but actually if we could breed animals with health in mind because that's you know from a companion animal perspective what do we want more than for them to be healthy and have a good life and you know to actually enjoy their interactions with us and by looking and picking based on looks which animals we want which a lot of us do without even realizing we're not going to improve their lot in life um that's that's awesome i, I uh I've, I've seen you uh on on tv obviously you get a lot, asked a lot of uh just lucky of to have me here shows really and things. I'm incredibly fortunate <laughs> i was just wondering is there is there a common question that people ask you in the in the media that are not they're not sort of in, cool. the, in the veterinary field oh they just love the word banning i think the, the, <laughs> the media love to ask the question of yeah. should these breeds be banned and i think that is as we know a really challenging one banning breeds has obviously been done for different reasons in the uk and obviously there's a consultation on that in government right now so that's obviously hasn't been a successful one from a behavioral perspective um and again we we want people to do right because they choose to because of their own morals and ethics and judgment of of animals um, but I suppose at the same time we're not banning cigarettes, alcohol. Yeah, so else. there's bad things. We're constantly exposed and we could indulge in bad things constantly. But sometimes we're only harming ourselves rather than potentially generations of thousands of dogs mm. or other animals. So, yeah, um, that is one that the media will jump on nearly immediately. Um, and also there's a heavy focus on the Kennel Club as an organisation, at least within the UK, and what should they be doing? And I think most people who've worked in this for a while will realise that they are one of many players within this. Um, and there's things they can do and there's things that they are doing, but it's more nuanced than they change the breed standard and everything gets better overnight. So, yeah, I think recognising that this is a really a big net and actually focusing on demand um, rather than supply has been something in my own mind that shifted a bit so thinking more about the people who want them rather than the people who are producing them because if people didn't want them then why would people produce them you know if if you can sell a frenchie puppy for two and a half thousand pounds this afternoon then you can see why unscrupulous people do it where if you couldn't sell them for 10 pounds at the local pub then why would you do it it's uh, it's, it's 
yeah, a very, very, uh, very, very good point. So it's probably like tr- you're trying to target it from different mm. areas. And as, as you said, like having a brachycephalic working group, is yep. that the name? I mean, that sounds like a fantastic direction because it's it, unfortunately, like with so much in life, it's not one of these problems that you can just uh, flick a switch and it's no. all going to go away. You know, that's and as you, I, I'm, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, 100 years ago, people were having the same question, yeah. but probably in a different <laughs> format, you know, with a town crier or something Absolutely. like that, <laughs> rather than, you know, in, in, in this sort of way but uh um but i, I mean yeah it's it's, it's fascinating obviously you're gonna you know um you know be with us for 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 a long while i suppose and before we can before we can sort this out um so uh, so my final question mm-hmm. if that's all right Rune, is is that uh, i've spoken to a variety of different researchers here, uh, here and obviously you said that there's uh, a lot of uh, stresses in the in the job and maybe that sort of living hand to mouth and knowing where the next grant is and putting yourself out there um i'm just wondering if you're if you're happy to share like what do you do to make sure that you're okay you know it's more more the mental health kind of uh, kind of framework what do you do um or try to do to to keep yourself okay i think making sure that although it, there's a temptation within academia for work to be your life that actually making sure that you have a good perspective on life outside of work i think i think i have a really good work life balance i really really try to keep my evenings and weekends as free of work as physically possible which some people might think oh that's impossible or you're not working hard enough but I think if I do that then I'm generally a lot fresher and a lot better when I'm actually at work so I think I know that's a really silly like it's difficult to say to somebody oh just make sure you've got more free time because sometimes you know things do get very busy if you have a grant deadline you have something that cannot wait that sometimes you do have to give up a bit of your own time but actually really making sure that that isn't your life for forevermore and that you reserve something for yourself I think for me is what works and how, how did you you get to that realization because obviously that, that's quite mm. a mature attitude you know to to have to say I need to carve out this this time so was that that you saw in people do that or you realized that actually I can't I can't work 20 hours a day. And, I think it's just reflecting on the quality of my own work that I know that if I ha- have to put in really long hours for a very long time, that actually I'm not as productive and my ideas aren't as good and my work isn't as accurate or good when I'm in that state. So actually, in terms of using your time well, um, being a little bit better at, at project managing your own brain, I guess, particularly having worked with Holger on my postdoc, on having multiple different projects simultaneously. That was so different to my PhD, which was one focus project by me, that actually, that I think that's a good thing to know how to juggle conflicting demands. And I am by no means perfect at this, but it's something that I, th- I think at least being self-aware of um, and knowing how to prioritize your different projects and then the project of, of your literally your own life within that um, is really important fantastic um i know your your partner and, and you said you listen to use this it would be wittertainee so i suppose mm-hmm. we should say hello to jason absolutely i'd be um, in trouble if you didn't <laughs> well many many thanks for your time today Rowena. it's been fascinating no and uh, and hopefully we'll we'll get you back in the in the soon talk about how you're progressing and actually um you know the, these massive issues are, that uh, it's great that you you are addressing them probably sad in a way that uh, you didn't think it was going to crescend you mm-hmm. know and be and be a problem but but thank you so much for no. uh, Um, for your time today thanks for having me
Um, and thank you. So we'll wrap it up there. And many thanks for your time today for, for listening. Um, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you won't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a, a review uh, on Apple Podcasts, then that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, friends or any, any other friends who don't, we're, we're, uh, we don't mind. Um, we'll take anyone. So we'll place any show notes on the RBC pages and some links that Rowena was talking about. And if you just type in RBC Research Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.